Welcome to the uh, Pacific Room of the National Arts Centre. And all of you by now know the routine. I invite a, a prominent Canadian newsmaker to come up and join us. Uh, we're going to speed up the tempo a little bit tonight because there's some business to take care of. Next week, the Kinder Morgan Company of Houston, Texas is going to tell the world whether they feel like building a pipeline anymore. That's of pressing interest to everybody in the country and especially to the folks in Alberta. And my guest tonight, Jason Kenney, is hoping at some near point to become the Premier of Alberta. And he's been making a lot of noise about this file. I want you to put your hands together and uh, welcome our guest this evening, Jason Kenney. Uh, and thank you for accepting our invitation. Uh, it, it's not quite as easy for you as it is for our Ottawa guests. You had to actually come in from out of town. Um, I take the red eye, so you've got an advantage over me for sure. <laughs> now, last time I saw you here, you were, uh, what's the line of somebody who has the, the, the worst possible uh, election outcome? His party law loses government, but he wins his seat. Uh, <laughs> you were a member of the Conservative Opposition Caucus. Um, what did you want to do in those days and weeks after the election? What, 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 what were you thinking your next five years was going to look like? Well, first, I just wanted to catch up on my sleep. <laughs> um, I, uh, during the last election, which seemed to go on forever, there was about three months for me, from July till October of 15, um, I'm told I did something like 650 events and 150 ridings in 11 provinces and territories, but who's counting? And um, I think I, they gave me maybe one, two days off in a three-month stretch, and I was doing six, eight events a day, a lot of them in cultural communities, and I was a surrogate spokesman when the prime minister wasn't available. So, I mean, I was completely enervated and uh, just uh, hibernated for a little bit, a little, bit, a little while. And, um, and then people started to call me up and say, maybe you should think about running to replace Stephen, and... Uh, that's a decision I sort of dreaded. I knew I'd have to make at some point. Um, and, uh, and frankly, I was just tired, a little bit tired of Ottawa, tired of, of the grind of 19 years here. And I'd been operating at a pretty high tempo as a minister for several years. Um, so I started thinking seriously about other options. About, I was getting some interesting nibbles in the private sector, a think tank here, a nonprofit there. Um, and uh, it, it took several months for me to begin to think seriously about the situation in Alberta. That, ult that ultimately drew my, drew my attention. Um, and what's it like, we will talk a lot about what's going on in Alberta, obviously. What's it like coming back to, to Ottawa uh, after now a couple of years of being away? Hasn't changed very much. No. <laughs> but the National Arts Centre, nice to be here. This is what Andrew Cohen once described as resembling a Stalinist detention centre. It looks a lot nicer now. Yeah, it's, I like what you've done with the place. Uh, uh, one of my favorite responses to that is that uh, my colleague David Reevely at the Ottawa Citizen dug out some photos of actual Stalinist detention centers. And it, and it was accurate. Well, no, the thing, about, the thing about Stalinist detention centers is they're some of the most beautiful buildings in, this is true. in the capitals of the old Iron Curtain. Because yeah, if you go to the Terror Museum in Budapest, that's one example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because everything's a lie. So, of course, the Stalinist detention centers look great. <laughs> So this would have been the Ministry of Beauty or something, right? <laughs> uh, but it is looking pretty good, I got to say. Uh, well done. Well done. Thanks partly in in uh, thanks partly to your old colleague uh, John Baird, who yeah, has he did the convention center behind us right here. Yeah, yeah, he didn't physically actually do any of the <laughs> building, but uh, 
and it sounds better. I remember you and I were at, uh, were part of a, a crowd of people at a concert by the orchestra and Yo-Yo Ma, and you couldn't believe how bad it sounded. Uh, right. The, the, the hall, but it's been renovated. You should come, you should, you know, that. in your ample spare time, you should come and-, and uh, Actually, the reason I agreed to do this interview, I thought, I honestly thought this was Paul Wells in the knack, like with a symphonic background, we're talking music, you're gonna talk jazz and stuff like this. Yeah. I didn't know it was politics. I wouldn't have agreed to this if I'd known No, that. it's, it, it's gonna be worse than your worst nightmare. <laughs> uh, I, and one more trip down memory lane, but there's a point to it. Uh, several years ago, I visited uh, for an interview in your old uh, uh, MP's office, which was in the East Block. Yeah, beautiful building that right above, I think it's where John McDonald kept the clerks of the Privy Council up there. Yeah. yeah, and who did you have to arm wrestle for that office? Like, It was a hidden gem, nobody knew about it. I had these like beautiful cathedral beams and, and exposed brick walls and everything. It was just a, one of the nicest offices and nobody knew about it, so I just stumbled on it. Actually, there used to be Irish drinking parties there hosted by uh, Pat O'Brien and, uh, um, and some of the Irish MPs. That was their, like they had a makeshift pub on the hill in the Chrétien government. Uh -huh. That's where I found out about it. Kegs of Guinness lying around there. And that stopped as soon as you moved in. Yep. <laughs> uh, the thing that I noticed there, as a, as a, as a, as a columnist looking uh, desperately for some uh, fodder for an anecdote, is that you had three portraits of prominent political figures in the office. Uh, Sir Thomas More. Uh, a lot of people, I would ask, they would thought it was Niccolo Machiavelli. Yeah. Um, Machiavelli, you didn't need a photo to remind you. you it was all memorized. <laughs> Thomas More, William Wilberforce, who was a, 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 a reform figure in, in British politics. The great and, man, the, the um, great abolitionist of the slave trade. And uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. And the thing that struck me at the time was only one of those three had actually gone on to lead a government. The others had been power behind the throne, agitator uh, in the face of power. They hadn't been actual heads of government. And the conclusion I drew is that this guy's never actually gonna run for a leadership position. He just wants to be the person to whom the leader owes everything. Uh, was that just a flat wrong guess or did you change your mind at some point? <laughs> well, I, I'm actually not completely off. Like I, I, people ascribe to me ambition for leadership, which I never possessed myself, honestly. Like I, I, because of my hyperactivity politically in, during the Harper years, uh, out on the road, in the party, reaching out, building. I, 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 I think it's fair to say that I, I did a lot to, uh, to build the party in those years. Uh, in, the, in the cynical mind of Ottawa, the, the assumption was I was only doing that to develop a leadership campaign, um, which wasn't true. I mean, I actually was passionate. I, Stephen Harper and I had this uh, argument at the uh, Mayfair, well, the Royal Oak Pub on Bank Street in 1990. Uh, five, after we watched Pulp Fiction together, believe it or not. By the way, um, I thought it was hilarious and he was completely grossed out by it. So <laughs> we debated Quentin Tarantino. And then I proposed that the future of the Conservative Party, if it ever wanted to be a governing coalition, had to lie with immigrant communities who were, whose natural values and aspirations aligned with, our, with the Conservative Party. And just many didn't know that because we'd never bothered to introduce ourselves. And he disagreed with me passionately that night. He said, most of these communities are hardwired into the liberal electoral coalition. It's just, it's, we can't undo 30 years of, of their political work. 
Um, but in the early 2000s, after he became leader, he called me into his office and said, remember that debate we had eight years ago at the, uh, uh, I was having a Guinness, he was having a Diet Coke at the, at the Royal Oak. He said, I want you to prove me wrong. So I went out to that. I was actually passionate about proving uh, the, the truth of my theory about the, the intuitive conservatism of most new Canadians. And it was for me, it was about the movement. It was about the principles that motivated my public service. It wasn't about an office, an empty aspiration. So I kind of surprised myself by what I decided to do in 2016 in Alberta. And you did, to follow that thread, you did uh, spend several years uh, reaching out to uh, uh, immigrant communities and, and various religious communities. You got the nickname Minister of Curry in a hurry. Um, one of the questions I've, I've had in, in recent months is who's doing that work in today's federal conservative party? Yes, yeah, so I have the question too. I mean, I think Andrew is doing a good job. And, and I, as I follow him, he's making a deliberate effort. And a lot of the folks that I... Uh, attracted to the party as volunteer organizers or helping him out, helped out his leadership campaign. Um, and, uh, and so uh, more needs to be done. But um, it's, you know, it's work that's too vast for any one person. Okay. Uh, it is work that you've continued in Alberta. Mm -hmm, to some extent, to the greatest extent I can. Um, but a lot of my time has been in a pickup on the road doing over a thousand events. Um, in every corner uh, of Alberta. Now uh, I'm at a stage where I'm spending more time with cultural communities in the two big cities. Okay. Um, is it strange to um, actually spend so much time in Alberta? Because one of the things you had the luxury of when you were a federal uh, MP and a federal minister was you had a pretty safe riding and you didn't actually have to keep an eye on it. Um, did Alberta change much while you were not away, but, but, but less frequently there? Well, obviously, it changed in some respects, but there's a theory. Don Braid, a Calgary columnist, wrote a book about the NDP's election in 2015, the thesis of which is that Alberta's political culture fundamentally changed and the NDP's election was evidence of that. And basically, his thesis is that through migration and millennials and so forth, that Alberta's political culture has moved to the left, maybe even to the center or center left. And um, I think he is completely wrong. I think there is zero empirical evidence to support that. I really do believe that while the NDP's mandate is obviously legitimate, it was in a political sense an accidental outcome. They didn't expect to win that election, even I think on election day. Nobody else did. Um, you had this perfect storm for them, a division between the, in, within the center-right um, coalition, the PCs and the Wild Rose Party, right down the middle. You had a lot of default free enterprise voters who stayed home to, to, uh, as a reflection of their frustration with the, uh, with the choices, and, and some free enterprise voters who cast what they thought were risk-free protest votes for the NDP. Now, we've reunited that free enterprise coalition. I've got a, our party has something like, a, well, in our poll, a 36-point lead, other polls a 25-point lead. We have a healthy lead in every demographic, in every cohort, in every region of the province. And when I look at the issues, the predominance of concern about debt and deficit, um, about Alberta's role in the Federation, about openness to health care reform and education, school choice, and so forth, when I look at the actual matrix of issues, Alberta looks like Alberta to me. Uh, people want a, a sensible mainstream center-right free enterprise government and those kinds of practical solutions. 
So no, I don't think it changed by orders of magnitude, perhaps changed by, uh, by degree. Um, let's turn to current events. And let me start with something that you tweeted when Kinder Morgan announced that it was going to give itself May to decide what was going to happen. You tweeted, um, you didn't need the full 240 characters. You said that Canada's broken. How did, how did Canada get broken? Who broke it? What do you mean by that? Canada's the greatest country in the world. I'm a passionate Canadian national, something I inherited from uh, my grandfather, who was a, a great Canadian, a lifetime member of the Liberal Party. Um, and so I'm filled with nothing but optimism about Canada's future. What I meant was that our federation is not working. If you know, the promise of confederation 151 years ago was of an economic union in the northern half of North America. Um, and that's the premise of, the, of confederation, which is now under assault. Uh, we have a provincial government in British Columbia which is arrogating to itself the power to determine what products can be exported uh, from uh, Canada's west coast. Um, that is explicitly violating the constitutional jurisdiction of the federal government on interprovincial uh, infrastructure, and that in the process is attacking our country's vital economic interests. Can you think of any other state in the world, I can't, where one part of the country would say, this, we are going to sterilize this coast from, from exports of products that we don't particularly like. My point is simply this. The Federation is not working, but all, if that is the case. Um, but more deeply, there's a set in Alberta, a deep and growing sense of frustration. I've never seen it like this before. Uh, because Albertans have a sense that we, we've done well. We've prospered. The energy sector has been a huge part of that. And we have shared much of that wealth. On average, about $20 billion net to the rest of the Federation through the whole system of fiscal federalism, uh, equalization, and other transfers. So we're talking $200 billion in the last decade alone, hundreds of billions of dollars in recent decades that have been transferred from Alberta to help our fellow Canadians. Albertans are generous. They don't object to sharing some of our prosperity when times are good in our province and bad elsewhere. But we, Albertans have the sense that the opposite has been true recently. Other provinces that have been in a period of growth with lower unemployment and with surpluses have been receiving effectively transfers from unemployed Albertans through their federal taxes. And even that they could tolerate, but now they see political and opinion leaders in other parts of the country um, who are openly hostile to the development of the industry that helps to pay the freight. And so I, I think there's this, there's this growing sense amongst Albertans that, hold on a second here, you know, we... We've helped, to, to, we've created enormous, Rex Murphy's very, very eloquent about how Alberta has been a great engine of social mobility for moving people from po poverty and, and dependency to prosperity and opportunity, that people have moved to Alberta. We've, we've, we've been the most dynamic job market. Um, and we've contributed disproportionately to the prosperity of the Federation. And now we feel like all of that that we've built is under attack. People feel like they're being besieged. And I'm saying that's what's broken about the Federation now. Okay. Let's unpack some of that. Um, uh, Alberta has been generous, uh, has been a net contributor to equalization for Ever. your lifetime and mine. Um, uh, it, hasn't, it hasn't had to take an oath of poverty to do that. Alberta uh, per capita government spending before Rachel Notley became premier was the highest in the country. And still is. Is, is higher now. 
um, uh, the generosity of social programs, of, of health and education programs in, in, in Alberta is something that other uh, provinces would sure like to match if they could. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not as though Alberta has spent itself into poverty over sure. this time. Um, and uh, on the equalization program, this is, you can see this one coming a mile away. You were a minister in the government that uh, set in place the current equalization program. It, was there not uh, some discussion about changing it then? Well, there, not only was there discussion, there were changes. You could do an interview with Danny Williams about those changes. Um, perhaps the changes didn't go far enough. But what was different then versus now is that uh, we were at a time of prosperity, not a recession in Alberta. And we didn't have this alignment of forces trying to bottleneck our primary export and the driver of our prosperity. That's what's different now. I mean, I'll just give you one example. Um, the largest recipient of equalization is the province of Quebec. Um, and we had prominent Quebec political figures argue, and, and much of the political class militating against Energy East, which would have allowed Quebec to displace foreign oil imports and to consume instead Alberta, Western Canadian energy, which helps to generate the wealth that is transferred through equalization. That was all, that was killed effectively, I believe, by the federal government telling the National Energy Board to get into the business of regulating up and downstream carbon emissions. And with it, the, the dream of energy independence died. Just at the same time, you've got Quebec opening a cement factory that emits 2 million metric tons of CO2 emissions, built with about half a billion dollars of public loans and loan guarantees. The fiscal capacity for which I would argue in part came, comes through those equalization transfers. Which factory was exempted from environmental assessment or any limits on its carbon emissions and which was developed by the guy who's the major shareholder of Bombardier, whose airplanes we subsidize and which airplanes produce enormous CO2 and GHG emissions for which they are not limited or regulated. So Albertans say, hold on a second. We can't, choose, we can't displace Venezuelan dictator oil with our energy, but we're supposed to subsidize CO2-producing industries that are not regulated while you're killing our pipeline with these regulations. So, um, you know, it, yeah, we, we continue to be a, a relatively prosperous province. Albertans are generous, but this violates their sense of fairness. Okay. Well, then you must be thrilled because things are looking up because here's a federal government and a federal finance minister, Bill Morneau, who's working just about full time to figure out a way to uh, uh, pony up a federal stake in the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Isn't that great? Well, is it a, <laughs> is it a stake? Um, or uh, is it what the announcement we got last week was uh, some form of limited and qualified indemnification? Um, look, I am not completely opposed to some form of public participation in the pipeline as a last resort, as a last resort. But the first resort, uh, it must be getting the thing built. And uh, there's been no change in that. Kinder Morgan didn't come to the table a month, uh, six weeks ago saying they want a bailout, they want a backstop, they want a loan guarantee. They said what they want is legal certainty that they can build the thing in British Columbia. And um, so I don't think this is the federal government responding to the actual issue. They could and should use their uh, constitutional authority to override any dilatory tactics from the BC New Democrats. I think they could, well, just for greater certainty, could invoke the declaratory power of the Constitution. In doing that, 9210C, there's a Senate bill that's now in front of the House of Commons. They could use the power of the federal purse. I believe this is what Pierre Trudeau would have done to protect federal jurisdiction. They'd put the, 
the federal liberals just gave BC $4.2 billion in discretionary infrastructure funding. They're negotiating the labor market agreement renewals. That's $1.1 billion of federal discretionary transfers. This is not health care. I think if they were the least, if they were remotely serious about this, they would have used the power of the purse to apply pressure uh, to BC. If, so they can put in the loan guarantees or indemnification, but that if that doesn't stop the, uh, the legal runaround, the death by delay strategy, the war in the woods strategy, then what has anybody gained? So what does the power of the purse look like? What's going on in, in British Columbia now that the federal government should stop paying for? Well, I, I've identified two things in particular, which is the uh, over $4 billion in, in discretionary federal infrastructure transfers. I would say um, that, uh, I would say to the government of British Columbia, if you're going to block a $7.4 billion private sector infrastructure investment that will create thousands of jobs and generate hundreds of billions of dollars of value for the country, then we're not going to give you $4 billion of discretionary infrastructure uh, money. Um, so we'll give you that check as soon as construction is well underway for Kinder Morgan. Or the job training funds. You're going to kill thousands of jobs? You want us to, 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 to uh, reward you with a billion dollars in labor market agreement funding? No. We're going, to, we're going to apply a condition that you respect the Constitution, the rule of law, and free trade within Canada before doing so. By the way, I've always been a hawk on internal free trade. I was a guy around the Harper cabinet table arguing for use of the, you know, um, using the federal constitutional authority to override interprovincial trade barriers in goods and services and labor. So this is not a new position for me. The declaratory power that you talk about was last used in 1961. It's fallen out of fashion for a long time. Our circumstances so dire that we go back to what was common practice when Ethan Baker was the prime minister? Well, I think more like when Laurier was prime minister, was more often used before the... Uh, the Second World War, the answer is yes, this is developing into a constitutional crisis. <laughs> and, and it's almost existential for the future of our economy, in, in my judgment. The, by far the largest Canadian export product has been our energy. Our balance of uh, trade would be a deficit, would be significantly worse were it not for the energy that we currently export. We have the third largest oil, as oil reserves on Earth, which have a current notional global value of over $11 trillion. Our ability to pay for our, manage our debts, growing healthcare costs, infrastructure, and all of that is partly dependent on our ability to, to, to get some value, real value. But we're selling our oil to the Americans at, uh, at a massive discount. It's costing us now about $50 million a day as an economy. It costs the Alberta Treasury billions of year, billions a year. So I can't think of a higher stakes game that we've faced in terms of interprovincial trade in our modern history, for sure. Um, normally, the way that these knots get untied in Canada is through court cases. And there are two uh, references in two provinces uh, which are heading towards court hearings. The British Columbia is testing its ability to do the sort of stuff that you find upsetting. And um, uh, a different file, but one that's worth talking about, Saskatchewan is testing the federal government's ability to impose a carbon tax. Uh, that's the way it rolls. You know, I, I have a hunch that you think that BC is not going to win its reference. So, you know, won't things get better over time? Well, here, perhaps they will. But time is not on the side of this project. Time is on the side of the enemies of, I submit, economic progress. Uh, that strat very clear, integrated strategy of the opponents of the energy industry is death by delay. 
And, and Paul, I've got to pull the camera back here for a second, okay? This didn't just sort of unfold in the lab. People might think, oh, the ABC NDP came to office and suddenly decided to pick a fight on this pipeline. No. Ten years ago, in 2008, the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation uh, hosted a meeting in New York with a couple of dozen environmental organizations in, in, in which they developed something called the TARSENS Tar Initiative, an integrated, uh, multifaceted uh, political strategy to landlock uh, Canada's oil sands from getting to global markets. Uh, why? Because I assume that those activists concluded they couldn't stop a barrel of oil from being produced or shipped from Saudi Arabia, uh, Venezuela, Russia, Iran, or Qatar. But they could. They saw us as the boys, global Boy Scouts, as the soft political target. Vivian Krauss in Vancouver has detailed how they've, that foreign foundations, primarily the U.S. as far as we know, have spent, invested tens and tens of millions of dollars in this campaign to give this huge industry, the make it out to be the moral equivalent of big tobacco. So what we're dealing with now is just the culmination of that campaign. I mean, the BC environment minister two months ago attended a weekend conflab with these organizations, many of which are involved in active civil disobedience. So when I say there's a strategy here and the strategy is death by delay, I mean it. It's a coordinated strategy, and the legal strategy of the BC government is just part of that. And there's, there's, there, are, there are many other uh, legal challenges coming forward from First Nations being funded by foreign foundations. There's the civil disobedience. There's municipal governments refusing to grant permits. It's this entire constellation of de delays which has caused the project proponent, after spending a billion dollars, to say they may be willing to, to give that up. Okay. In 2012... Oh, oh, sorry, you remind me. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Power of the purse? The federal government here is withholding $60 million, I think, from the government of Saskatchewan for not complying with its cap-or-trade or carbon tax strategy. So they're willing to use the power of the purse against provinces that are non-compliant with one side of their, of their energy climate strategy, but not the other side. Okay. You pulled the camera back to 2008, and that, that was uh, uh, pertinent and useful and worthwhile information. Let me push it forward to 2012, when the federal government of the day decided it was going to uh, uh, do everything it could to accelerate the development of, uh, of, of new oil pipelines and uh, hit a succession of brick walls. Uh, Christy Clark was the liberal uh, premier of British Columbia at the time. She came up with five uh, uh, conditions for Northern Gateway. Uh, and the government of the day, what you remember, was very leery about directly confronting Premier Clark, uh, the, that, that project was delayed until a successor government, Trudeau's, could, could kill it. Uh, it. It seems to me that, that your own history in federal government is not one of particularly greater success at, uh, at uh, combating these forces of delay. Well, first of all, uh, during the tenure of the Harper government, there were four pipe, large pipeline projects that were approved and built, which, dub, which increased uh, oil shipments by about 1.8 uh, million barrels per day, doubling the shipment capacity uh, for our industry. Um, and secondly, uh, in terms of coastal pipelines, uh, we approved the Northern Gateway Pipeline five months after it had been approved by the National Energy Board. Um, it's true the court said Crown needs to go back and do uh, more Aboriginal consultation. I by the way, I spent 10 days, as a Stephen Harper said to any minister with anything remotely attached to that file, get into Northern British Columbia, talk to the First Nations, 
In my case, I went there bearing gifts with, with $20 million of additional job training funds to help Aboriginal communities participate in the op economic opportunity. So we had advice from justice that we had discharged the Crown's obligation to consult. Uh, the court disagreed. I think you'll admit that is a bit of a moody, moving target as to what discharges the duty to consult. Um, but we, that was approved, and then it was arbitrarily vetoed by Prime Minister Trudeau, who th then effectively killed uh, Energy East August 23rd, 2017. Uh, Russ Gerling, the CEO of TransCanada, says we're putting the pause button on this $8 billion um, project to displace foreign oil imports from Eastern Canada, Energy East, because of regulatory uncertainty created by the National Energy Board, uh, so this is September 7th, which, which required that they take account for up and downstream carbon emissions. Just, by the way, Barack Obama didn't veto Northern Gate, sorry, Keystone XL going to the U.S. Gulf Coast until a week after Stephen Harper had left office. I don't think that's a coincidence. This federal government surrendered without any diplomatic repercussions for that. And now I submit they've done nothing substantive to fight for Trans Mountain. So I think their record is one of surrender, whereas ours was, and, and by the way, we were criticized. The NDP and the Liberals voted against a bill that we brought in to uh, limit the time during which the NEB could consider an application for a pipeline. They criticized us for advertising to Canadians about the importance of environmentally responsible resource development. They uh, besmirched the reputation of the NEB, which was considered one of the most credible regulators in the world in this space. So I, I think our record is defensible. Um, I'm struck by your assertion that the Prime Minister doesn't want uh, this pipeline actually to be built. Uh, he seems to be spending an awful lot more time uh, working to get it built in the face of opposition from the British Columbia government, even though they've got 19 seats in British Columbia, than he is trying to hold back the government of Alberta, even though they've only got four seats in Alberta, maybe none in the next election. I mean, all of the political advantage, and Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, has seen this, all of the political advantage, if you're on the left of, of center, is, is in opposing this pipeline. And yet it seems to me this Prime Minister is putting a lot of political capital into championing this pipeline. Am I missing something? Well, I'll tell you what I'm, what we're missing is action. We're getting bromides, but no action. You know, willing to punish the government of Saskatchewan for not imposing a punitive carbon tax on its citizens by withholding federal transfers, but rewarding the government of British Columbia that's in flagrant violation of the Constitution, that's creating this economic and constitutional crisis. I don't think that reflects the seriousness that this requires. Um, and um, look, all I know is this is a prime minister who said, and I don't really believe it was a slip of the tongue, that he, want, that he looks forward to the day we phase out the oil sands in Canada, whose principal secretary, that we, who we know has very considerable influence, uh, Jerry Butts, when he was head of the World Wildlife Federation, was asked, do you have an alternative pipeline route? Because he was speaking against every one of these proposals, he said no. No to any alternative pipeline routes. I want an alternative economy without hydrocarbons. I think that's the motive force of this government. Uh, and, um, you know, I think they're trying to manage conflicting political pressures within the Federation, pro-development uh, voters, green voters, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. But um, I can only measure them by their actions, which so far have been underwhelming. Okay. What do you make of Rachel Notley's actions? Uh, I think of late, they're, they're impressive. Uh, I... I, I I think she's a little bit late to the game. Uh, the BC New Democrats signed their agreement with the Green Party a year ago this week. They then came to office in July of last year on an explicit promise to do everything possible 
and use every available tool to immediately uh, shut down the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, I think she should have responded with, uh, by making it clear there would be very grave consequences then. I proposed a fight back strategy last summer, starting with diplomacy and persuasion, if that didn't work, economic sanctions up to and including, um, I, I talked about the wine boycott last summer, um, safety inspections on BC exports going through Alberta, I talked about potentially tolling BC natural gas that passes through Alberta to the United States markets. And I talked about replicating Steve, uh, Peter Lougheed's 1980 strategy on the NEP, which was the turn off the taps legislation to raise uh, retail, you know, the prices at the pump. Uh, at, when I proposed these things uh, 10 months ago, uh, Premier Notley, for whom I have considerable regard, mocked and ridiculed these ideas. She said I was having a temper tantrum, acting like Donald Trump, that I wanted to build a wall around Alberta and make BC pay for it, which I thought was a clever line. Um, and then in January, February of this year, that became her policy. So imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I'm glad she's adopted some of these ideas. My concern is that her fellow New Democrat, John Horgan, doesn't think she's serious about it. We've been talking a lot about half of the energy environment equation. Uh, on the environment side, on the climate change side, you've been making some interesting uh, uh, statements lately. Um, you're often accused of not having any policy at all to control climate change. And uh, lately you've contradicted that. What, what, what is your plan on climate change? Well, we'll publish a uh, realistic plan on the environment and on climate change in our platform about nine, or sorry, 11 months from now, next spring. Um, but right now what we're looking at is reverting to, I think the, the, which, what was the first levy or tax on carbon emissions uh, in Canada it was introduced by the previous PC government, but it was focused on major industrial emitters. It didn't punish consumers for heating their homes in the winter or driving their cars to work. Um, it, it was a levy on major emitters, that 100% of which revenues went into a tech fund. And I think that's where the solution will be found. It's not punishing seniors for heating their home when it, homes when it's 20 below outside. It's in thousands of small technological advances that will shrink the carbon intensity of industry that we will actually, and we've done that in Alberta, by the way. The, the oil sands, the, the carbon in, the footprint of a barrel of bitumen is a third of what it was 20 years ago. This happened through intensive research. A lot of it done at our great universities in Alberta. So fund more of that. So that's also, much of that becomes exportable to developing countries that are, that have environmental challenges. Secondly, um, I'm interested in the regulatory approach being taken by the Saskatchewan government. One thing they're doing is to help accelerate um, agricultural um, practices of zero tillage farming that create carbon, that allow for vast areas of farmland to become a carbon sequestration. And thirdly, I'd be willing to look at some positive incentives for consumers in terms of energy efficiency. But we'll, we'll spell all that out next year. Does that, does that suite of measures bring you within a country mile of meeting uh, Alberta's share of the 2030 climate targets? Uh, I don't know. Uh, we, we're going to have to do the math on all of this. Um, all I know is that according, apparently according to the UN, uh, Canada is at least 90 um, megatons short of, of the Paris target. Um, I think it, you know, we should keep that as an aspirational target, but we should not impose on our country massive economic costs that no other country is imposing on themselves. And this is the problem of carbon leakage. You know, since the Alberta NDP imposed a carbon tax in our province, um, not, not only because of that, but 
other policies, we've seen the flight of nearly $40 billion of capital from oil and gas in Alberta to oil and gas in North Dakota, Colorado, Texas, Kazakhstan, Iran. The capital has stayed in the industry, so it's not a function of price. It's, I think it's a function of policy. All of that money has gone to develop oil and gas in jurisdictions that do not have carbon taxes. And they do not have, I mean, do you think Iran or Saudi or Russia have serious plans to meet the Paris target? So my point is carbon leakage, maybe we'll feel more virtuous about ourselves if we kill jobs in Canada, but if all we're doing is creating jobs in countries that take the environment less seriously, the, the, the world is no better off. So your goal is to impose costs on large final emitters in uh, Alberta that are not serious enough to provoke a carbon uh, flight, carbon leakage. Um, we didn't see that flight of investment uh, when there was the, uh, what's known as the specified gas emitter regulation under the previous government prior to 2015. In fact, the industry was copacetic with that. Um, copacetic because it wasn't a very high price. Yeah, and you could say the same thing about the retail carbon taxes, the, the, the advocates for which say that for them to bend the, the, the curve sufficiently on consumption to hit Paris targets requires a price of $300 a ton, which is, uh, you know, in Alberta right now we're at $30 a ton. So I say it's time for those, carb for Minister McKenna and company to be honest with Canadians. Uh, this is all the, this is a frog in the pot strategy put the frog in a pot of boiling water, he jumps out, cold water, and gradually turn it up from a lukewarm to a simmer to a boil. You've got a boiled frog. They want the price to go to $200 and then $300 a ton and consumers to get gradually used to paying uh, uh, outrageously more to heat their homes and drive to work. I don't think that's a, a, a responsible environmental strategy. Do you think this is essentially a contrived problem, the uh, climate change uh, no. Okay, then um, at some point, uh, do you need responses on the scale of the problem? It's the, the problem is the tragedy of the commons. Uh, you know, we could shut down the Canadian economy tomorrow, mm -hmm. and it would make negligible, if any, measurable difference in global greenhouse gas emissions. China, in a year or two, yeah. its growth in emissions would make up for the elimination of the entire Canadian economy. So my point is... Let's be balanced about this, and let us recognize that we are a big, cold, spread out, northern, highly developed, industrialized economy that is a major energy producer. There are some unique characteristics. So, of course, we have higher than average per capita emissions. That is a function of who we are. Okay. Whenever I hear someone saying that Canada could shut down its economy and it wouldn't make any difference in the global greenhouse gas score, I love that argument because it's a very good argument for me not paying any income taxes. Because I can't afford... I, my income taxes aren't going to pay for uh, the equalization system, or they're not going to pay for $300 billion of, of infrastructure, so I might as well not pay any. Or do I have to pay my share? Yeah, of course we have to do our part. But we have to do our part without inflicting upon ourselves costs that are not shared elsewhere. I've used a good chunk of my time talking about basically two, two, two issues, oil and climate change. If you're lucky enough to become Premier of, of Alberta, how much of your attention is going to go to those two files? How much to the, to the entire rest? I, I'm actually, I, don't, I have no idea what the answer is. How much of your time are you going to be? Well, I, I suspect Premier Notley would say she's spending a lot more time. I, I doubt when she dreamed of becoming a Democrat, Premier of Alberta, she'd imagine she's, she'd be spending all of her time fighting for a, a Texas-based uh, pipeline company. Um, so it's, it, and, and, you know, 
Stephen Harper will tell you he'd never imagined he'd be spending, he would have spent much, if not most, of his time as prime minister on foreign policy. So events happen, and um, I, I think thanks to my governing experience here, I'm, I've got the disposition to respond to emerging events. But listen, I think this is, the, this is a hugely important, in the 1980s, the 70s and 80s, Peter Lougheed, uh, in many ways, was the counterpoint to Ottawa in developing um, a coalition of provinces against federal overreach. And I think that's a natural role for Alberta to play. So I'm already thinking forward and working with other provincial leaders across the country about how Alberta can play that role again. It's our perspective from the West, for many of us, that uh, Premiers Brad Wall and Scott Moe have been doing double duty as the kind of de facto leaders of the resource industries of Western Canada, Alberta, I think, needs to step up to the plate. And I think that will be the central question in the next Alberta election a year from now. Who can most effectively fight for our prosperity, for our province, for our core industries? Yeah. You had a party convention last weekend? Last weekend? Uh, two and a half weeks. Okay. Time flies. And it was designed to introduce the United Conservative Party to Alberta and to the, and to the world. And um, it was the largest political convention in Alberta history. Um, there were a couple of glitches. There were some resolutions that were passed by the members that um, uh, friends and allies of yours had argued against, uh, requiring uh, minors to get parental consent for invasive medical procedures, which could include abortion, it could include vaccination, uh, and also to get uh, parental consent for joining after-school clubs, which include... LGBTQ, uh, uh, Gay Street Alliance clubs and things like that. Um, after that, after those resolutions passed, two things happened. First of all, you said you're not going to feel bound by those resolutions. And secondly, a website in which you advertise your willingness to be led by the members rather than to, uh, to contradict them at every turn crashed. Is that website functional as of today? I don't think so. It was my leadership campaign website. Nice, nice spin, Paul. But... The reality is that was my leadership campaign website. And I, all I know is what I read from Jason Markasoff, so. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's true that my digital guys took down my leadership campaign website a few weeks ago because we were spending a couple thousand dollars a month to host a site that no one was going to for a campaign that ended seven months ago. But my so-called grassroots guarantee for policy development was for a very robust process that we led up to our founding convention. I think it was actually the most that we actually let every one of our 110,000 members vote on every one of the resolutions, which was unprecedented. But the fifth point in my plan was the leader would appoint a platform committee um, to develop a comprehensive, uh, positive vision for the future of our province. So that's always been, and, and of course the leader's going to do that. Of course, you know, a few dozen policy resolutions cannot constitute a costed uh, and comprehensive platform. So there's no news there. Um, I, you know, when you open up a process like, the, like we did, there's always going to be a risk that there's some things that are passed that are contentious. One of those resolutions was very poorly worded, and I've told people how I'm interpreting it as a requirement, as the, an affirmation of the longstanding requirement in Alberta law that parents be notified about content in the schools dealing with religion or human sexuality. And even the NDP seems to agree that that is sensible. They've not sought to change that. Um, but this was, look, I think you're missing the, uh, the forest here for the trees. This was the culmination of 18 months of amazing political work. Uh, we took two warring factions, uh, 
brought them together. We had a 95% ratification vote for this unity. Um, it's now the largest provincial party in uh, Canada in terms of uh, membership, the most popular political party in Canada in terms of polling. Um, this is something a lot of people thought could not be done when we started it two years ago. So I'd like to look at the convention as, as a success. Um, I ask about it because it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sensitive point in kind of the, uh, your own history in politics. Um, some of the earliest conversations we had when you remember the Reform Party were about how the old progressive conservative, the old federal progressive conservative party would have policy conferences and people would troop off to the policy conferences and then Kim Campbell and Brian Mulroney would say thanks but no thanks, we're going to do what we want to do. Um, does, does that history occur to you when, when, when you're deciding which policy resolutions from the convention to apply? I'm mindful of it, for sure. And I do think that what you describe is one of the reasons for the division in the uh, free enterprise uh, political, uh, uh, politics in, in Canada in the 1990s uh, and 80s. There was a sense that uh, a lot of people in the coalition were just thrown in the ditch and, and disregarded. And that's not what I'm doing. In fact, as I develop the platform, I, th I think this will be a first in Canadian politics, but I'm actually going to do regular surveys of the members that really will help to inform, because I don't want to get offside. Uh, our, our core supporters. Like, but a premier has to govern, the government has to govern for the entire population. In our case, 4.3 million Albertans, not 110,000 party members. So I think people understand you've got to balance those things out. But I will never end up in a situation like my former colleague Patrick Brown ended up here in Ontario, where he committed the Ontario PC party to a carbon tax without consulting the members and with massive hostility towards the idea from his electorate and his party base. So, um, no, I'm not going to go to that uh, extreme of almost purposefully disregarding the views of our membership. The resolutions they passed, the input they give us will constitute important input in the development of our platform. But there may be some points of, of derivation. Yeah. The old Wild Rose Party was often factious enough to give its various leaders uh, a headache. You've taken that party and the old Progressive Conservative Party and you formed uh, this new UCP. Is the U in that uh, accurate? Is it wishful thinking? How heterogeneous is the membership of the UCP? Um, quite. You would have seen this at our, at our convention. I would say about a third of the people there, of our 2,600 delegates, were uh, most recently active in the PC party, about a third most recently active in Wild Rose, and about a third had never been to a, a party event before, which is the cool part. That's the exciting part. I go to events every, every day I'm doing party events. How many people here, this is your first event? 25, 30% of the crowd put up their hands. That is my focus, which is not just the, the uh, marriage of, of, of two former factions, because that's going very well, but it's Albertans took for granted, many of us, our prosperity and our stability. You know, we thought the politics would take care of itself. And my message is that you can't take that for granted any, anymore. We had the lowest typical turnout in provincial elections in Canada, often averaging barely above 40%. Over 95% of people were never involved in a, in a campaign or a party. So we're trying to get a deeper sense of civic engagement through this. And those new people are helping to bring, I think, new energy, new idealism. And they're kind of the glue that are holding together um, the formerly divided factions. But I've got to tell you, there's no... We don't see... It, you saw it federally. There was a lot of skepticism. How would the merger work, the different cultures of the parties? It worked very well in that um, 
in the many years I was in the post-merger CPC caucus, I cannot remember a, a, a issue that divided our caucus or cabinet or party along legacy party lines. And I see uh, evidence of the same kind of unity of purpose in our new party in Alberta. You know, it's true, we might have lost a couple of hundred activists from the periphery of the two legacy parties, which is, but 95% voted yes to the, to, to, for the merger. So you, it doesn't get much better than that. Has one of the dangers in Alberta pol political culture over the last 40 years been um, the fact that the governing party was just almost guaranteed of getting back into power? Does that not tend to uh, produce a certain complacency? And from that angle, isn't the Rachel Notley uh, election a handy shot in the arm to Alberta's political culture? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. I'm not happy that it happened. I'm not happy with the policy consequences of it. I like that bit where you struggled before deciding that you might as well agree with me. That's, that's, a, that's a common reaction. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> well, let me tell you, Stephen Harper and I, uh, my, from my recollection, we were um, at a Canadian Special Forces base uh, west between Erbil and Mosul. Um, when we were briefed that the NDP had won the election in Alberta, and we wondered if maybe we should stay back there. But, um, um, you, you know, let, I, the, 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 the NDP was elected for, like, I think the fundamental reason was Albertans said, we're tired of a party that seems to be uh, taking us for granted, that seems entitled to power, that has developed a culture of arrogance. And Wild Rose didn't. So I, the way I character, I'm very blunt. I said this to our convention two weeks ago. Progressive Conservative Party, after 45 years in office, had begun to represent arrogance. The Wild Rose Party was seen uh, as unfit, unready to govern because of a lack of discipline. And so we must compensate for those two weaknesses by, being, by demonstrating a culture of humility and a culture of discipline in this new party. And the NDP has done some things that I uh, support and, and respect. They've, they've cleaned up the former culture of patronage, of... Uh, overpaying people in uh, agencies, boards, and commissions, getting corporate and union money out of uh, politics, and uh, promoting greater transparency. These are the number of things that Albertans wanted to happen regardless of who was in office. And over the last year, partly because it was coming back from so far behind, Alberta has led the country in economic growth. Over the past year, Alberta has had the sharpest decline in residents who are relying on employment insurance of any province. Um, after nine more months, 11 more months of that, uh, this incumbent government that you're facing might have a pretty good story to tell. Would you prefer that the election were held a little sooner? Um, the election under legislation is supposed to happen about a year from now. Um, we'll wait and see what happens with Kinder Morgan. I think that may, uh, there may be an argument if this project fails that we need to, have to hit, set the, uh, hit the reset button in Alberta politics. But in terms of the economy, uh, the NDP was sworn in three years ago today, I believe. Our gross domestic product today is smaller than it was in 2014. Uh, our labor force participation is down significantly. We continue to have the highest unemployment in Canada outside the Atlantic region. Calgary continues to have the highest unemployment of any major city in the country. Uh, tens of billions of dollars of capital have fled uh, the province. Uh, more people, uh, um, food banks say that they're still seeing twice as many people coming to their doors as was the case three years ago. So the notion that somehow um, uh, happy times are here again is not uh, uh, being felt by most Albertans. Um, 
What is your project for Alberta in Canada? Um, surely it can't be sort of putting out fires on pipeline projects indefinitely. What, what do you want to see Alberta doing uh, as a society and as a part of the Confederation five years out? Well, I think we have a, a unique and special role to play in the Federation the, that Alberta has through much of its modern history um, as a key engine of prosperity, as, which has helped to other parts of the country. We'd like, we'd like that prosperous Alberta to be back in, in a way that, that, that we can afford to share uh, some of our wealth with other uh, parts of the country, that we can be that engine of social mobility. And that, that would be my focus. What I'm really thinking about in developing our platform, I'm taking some cues from um, Arthur Brooks, the president of the American Enterprise Institute, in his uh, book, Conservatism of the Heart. I really want us to focus on uh, ideas developed by some Canadians like Yuval Levine about uh, using market tools for social mobility. Uh, even in the good times, there were too many Albertans left behind, too many people in our First Nations communities, too many immigrants unable to use their education and, and uh, professional training left at the margins of the labor market. Um, and, and so even in the best of times, we've had many serious social problems. So I, I want us to, I, my, my vision is of a, of a province that has the right policy setting to become an engine of wealth creation so that we can then redistribute some of that wealth for, for true equality of opportunity. And, I, and by the way, um, I think we're going to have a mandate to, to, to be ambitious with a policy reform agenda. Recent, recent PC governments kicked the can down the road on a number of issues. Uh, I'll give you one example, healthcare reform. Um, Alberta has the most expensive health system in the country per capita but we don't have the results that justify it. I say Albertans Albert should have at least as many choices as British Columbians and Quebecers have in terms of a mix of private delivery within universal insurance. So I'm prepared to take school choice, empowering parents uh, to choose the best education for their kids. It's a great Alberta tradition that I think we can amplify. So I think we can be, you know, the idea of a federation is you get a series of policy laboratories and, and, one, and provinces can, uh, can innovate I want us to be an innovative government. Alberta was this in the 1990s. We can be that again. We asked for uh, questions from readers on Twitter. What do they want to uh, ask Jason Kenny? Most of their responses, stuff I've just incorporated into our conversation tonight. But the question that got most retweeted... All the really rude stuff. Man, well, okay, so my, one of my favorite, uh, my favorite is, is Mr. Kennedy, is Mr. Kenny so desperate for power that he will say or do anything for votes? Uh, yes, no. No. Okay. Um... <laughs> Uh, I think we've seen the opposite tonight, sir. Uh, no, but the question that was most often retweeted was, um, which LGBTQ organizations have you met with since becoming UCP leader? And I think that expresses a, a, a concern in some corners that uh, uh, not everyone will be welcome in, 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 in this new Alberta, including LGBTQ that's, that's groups. Just, that's not true. I, I would, in, in fact, on the Sunday of our convention, I had a meeting about this resolution that passed with an LGB Tory group and a group called Parents for Choice in Education, where, we, where I already got them working together on a joint resolution um, where they agree on the right balance between um, protecting kids uh, in schools who are going through difficult uh, challenges and, uh, um, and, and, and parents' involvement in the education system. Um, we applied to go to the Edmonton and uh, a gay pride parade. I was happy to participate in that. We were told that we're not welcome to go. Um, so we'll continue to read. We're going to have a reception at the margins of that event. 
Um, listen, Paul, uh, when I became Minister of Immigration, the very first interest group that I met with, that at my invitation, was, was EGAL, uh, because they'd written to me, wanting to raise uh, issues around the uh, consideration of gay refugee claims. And I immediately instructed the IRB to work with EGAL to train decision makers uh, to understand the subtleties and nuances of claims on the grounds of sexual orientation. And then I reached, I read it in the Toronto Star, my favorite journal, a story about, uh, a story about a guy who was trying to bring in gay refugees who had fled Iran were living in Turkey. And he was running into bureaucracy at Immigration Canada. I personally picked up the phone, called this guy, met with him in Toronto the first month I was minister. I flew over to Ankara. I went to places in eastern Turkey to meet with gay Iranian refugees who were living underground and created an underground railroad with this organization, uh, the Iranian Queer Railway, Railway Network, that brought hundreds of people from potential execution in Iran uh, to security in Canada. And I've talked recently, because I think I need to be a little bit more personal about this stuff. I talked recently about how, when I was in college um, in San Francisco in the late 1980s, I volunteered occasionally at uh, North America's first AIDS hospice, established by Mother Teresa and her missionaries of charity, um, doing menial work there. But, at a, at, you know, at a, so I think I, I know where my heart is, and I will continue. You know, it's, yes, is it true? I voted for the traditional definition of marriage. And so if people want to condemn me as a moral reprobate for that, then they better be to do, prepared to do the same thing to everybody who was in democratic politics until, what, the last five or ten years, including Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin and Tommy Douglas and uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. So if, if that's the, 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 the contemporary um, barometer for tolerance and respect for human dignity, um, then uh, I would say apply it consistently. I, uh, my friend Trevor over here is saying that we're out of time. Uh, I know that we could continue this conversation all night, but we are going to um, have many months to discuss all these issues, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And you're welcome to come no. out and do some field work in Alberta sometime. Come out for the stampede. Uh, do you have any cowboys? Lisa, when were we in Alberta? Last we were there just a few, uh, just a, several weeks ago, and we'll, I'll be back. Don't you worry. Um, but enough about me. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight. Uh, and uh, there'll be a reception somewhere in this cavernous building that you can all join us at. And uh, Jason ha is going to be kind enough to come and join and, uh, and schmooze. So uh, thanks. Good night, everyone.